was a man at work who decided to show his wife how much he loved her. And before going home, he showered, he shaved, he put on some choice cologne, he brought her a bouquet of flowers, he went to the front door and he knocked. And his wife answered the door and said, Oh no, this has been a terrible day. First I had to take Billy to the ER and get stitches in his leg. Then your mother called and said she's coming for two weeks. And the washing machine broke. And now this, you come home drunk. (laughs) And there's a little humor in that. uh, And sadly, that does describe... Uh, what many would call the bondage of marriage. But that is not what the Scriptures describe in Hebrews chapter 13, our text this morning. For 11 chapters, the writer of Hebrews has unpacked the glories of the Gospel. The oneness we have with Jesus Christ, that we who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ and delivered into a fellowship and relationship with a, with, a, with a good Father, Almighty God. And now in chapter 12, He reminds us that we are part of an unshakable kingdom and that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus and we are to put off what is not part of Jesus and we are to put on Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 13, he works his way through the implications of the gospel in our lives. And he tells us here, and it's almost like he's working through some of the commandments that we're familiar with, some of the, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, the ways that, that, the, that the commands of God work out in the believer's life and, and joyful obedience. And he's showing us that the life that flows out of the gospel and verses 4 and 5 finds purity and finds contentment. Because Christ has given us all that He is. He has given us Himself. We need nothing more. We need nothing less than Christ Himself. We do not have to chase empty experiences, illicit relationships, shallowness in life, or increasing possessions to find fulfillment because Jesus is enough. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, upon this heading of letting brotherly love continue, and we talked about hospitality for a couple weeks, we reminded ourselves of our, of our kinship with our brothers and sisters in bonds and being persecuted. In verses 4 through 6, he reminds us of our marriage, our families, and our money. In verse 4, he says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take the truths of Hebrews 13, 4 through 6, and we would delight in your good design for marriage, and we would delight in your good design for money. I pray that we would hold the things that you hold in honor with the same degree of, of, uh, 
of, of, uh, of, of awe and, and sacredness. I pray that the, uh, the, the possessions and the means that You give us to honor and glorify Your name and to seek Your kingdom first would be uh, uh, seen as means and not as ends. Would be seen as ways to uh, uh, glorify You rather than build our own kingdoms. And Lord, I pray that the Word of God this morning would convict of sin it would push us to righteousness and it would remind us of the day when we will all stand and give account of our lives before our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me uh, skip ahead here to our uh, outline here. We are in chapter 13 talking about how the faith uh, in our Savior now walks out in our daily life. And I believe the first thing we can see from this passage in Hebrews chapter 13 is we are to delight in God's design for marriage. We are to delight in God's design for marriage. And we are to delight in God's design for money. Marriage and money. Two things that drastically affect probably almost all of us here in one way or the other. Delighting in God's design for marriage. First of all, from the text, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, or among all is the idea. Marriage is honorable among all. And the writer here is telling us to hold marriage in honor. To attack the institution of marriage which God instituted and began is a direct attack on God Himself. In Genesis 2 where he began the institution of marriage in one flesh covenant relationship, man and woman. The word here that's used for honor, <clears throat> marriage is honorable, is a word that is that is, in the original language is placed first in the sentence order, which means it's emphasized. Uh, it means of exceptional value. It means a uh, uh, highly prized. It's commonly used to speak of, of, of precious stones. The country of Myanmar where, where was able to be in November was known for their jewels, for their gemstones. And um, uh, they, they for, from what China hasn't taken from them, they have an incredible amount of, of, of mines that produce incredible rubies and sapphires. And uh, you can go on the street in the market because of a low crime in the city, and you can have a, 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 a poorly shod uh, man who is very poor be sitting there next to a, a vel- black velvet uh, piece of fabric with gemstones spread out upon it to, to purchase. Uh, this is the this is the word uh, that is used here for honor. It's the idea of something that is very precious. It's the word that's used in First Peter one nineteen, where Peter says the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And here the author here is taking something that is precious and saying it needs to be sacred. It needs to be honored. And members of the community of Christ are to value highly the union of marriage and to support in every way those who are married. We're to hold the, the institution of marriage in honor if we're going to delight in God's design for marriage. But secondly, we're to hold it in holiness. 
We're to hold it in holiness. Look what he says. And the bed undefiled. The bed undefiled. A euphemism for the marriage privileges. The one flesh physical relationship. The marriage bed must be kept pure. This is the idea that in order for a marriage to be preserved, uh, there needs to be an integrity to the marriage privileges of the bed. And the idea here is that relationships within marriage that are reserved for marriage are acceptable to God, but those that are outside marriage are not. Illicit relationships defile the marriage bed and profane what God has made sacred, profane what God has made holy. So, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Our society is driven by the bed, isn't it? Uh, we have very distorted views of the bed, even within the, even within the church can be distorted views of the marriage bed. And, and we're told that the marriage bed is just an appetite that we have. It's just an appetite. And so, uh, we, should be, we should feel free to fulfill the appetite when we feel the need. Or our spouse is meeting us in that fulfillment. Then we can look other places for that. And that was common in the days of the first century when this book was written. Uh, in other words, there's a thinking that there's no reason why we shouldn't sample a variety of cuisines. And look for new taste sensations. Another view looks at the marriage bed as something that is detestable. Something that is, is dirty, that is, that is gross. But none of these views are found in Scripture. There's a third view of the marriage bed, and it's the idea that uh, 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 if the first is it's an unavoidable drive that just must always be satisfied, and the second it's, a, it's just a necessary evil, the last view can see the marriage bed as a form of self-expression, just a way to be yourself and find yourself. Uh, in this view, you could use it however you want. If that's to be a family, then that's one thing. If I uh, do it outside of marriage, that's another thing. It's just my expression, right? And we've seen how that trickled out and how that plays out. And we, quite frankly, have the emperor running around with no clothes, not even knowing it today with the uh, gender um, confusion, don't we? Whatever I feel. But folks... Sin, which is first and foremost a disorder of the heart, has implications on an improper view of the marriage bed. The marriage bed is for whole life self-giving. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about how the marriage bed is for the other spouse. For your fulfillment for the other spouse and their fulfillment for, for, uh, for the for the other spouse. In other words, it is a it is not something that I look for for myself, but it's something to serve the other spouse. But it is all to be done in the under the auspices of a covenant relationship. Proverbs two seventeen calls your spouse a covenant partner. A covenant partner. We have missed the idea in marriage that marriage is a covenant. That marriage and love isn't about feelings, is it? Marriage is about commitment, a covenant. And now we have people who have built their lives and gone into marriage based on feelings, and the most feelings are gone, and 
they have been deceived by the evil one to say, that's it. Those feelings are gone. I need to find that in another place. And I will tell you, the grass will never be greener on the other side. You'll lose those feelings too. Uh, uh, there, is, there is no promise of, 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 of finding life in the book of Proverbs for one who takes these things that are reserved for your spouse in the covenant relationship of marriage. There is no promise for life for those who look for it elsewhere. In fact, Solomon says in one who could speak from experience that it's like taking coals of fire and heaping it in your bosom. You will burn. You will be destroyed. And God has created your wife for you. He has created your husband for you if you are married in marriage covenant. And part of being a man, part of being a woman of God is that you continue in faithfulness to each other. Now why would he say these things? He says these things in Hebrews chapter 13 because he, God is gracious enough to warn us. And so we are to hold marriage in honor. We are to hold it in holiness and sacredness and separate from the world's thinking and God's design, but we are to hold it in heed. And by that, I mean we are to take heed. We are to take warning. Look at the rest of verse 4. The word is actually for whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That word whoremongers is the word uh, having to do uh, uh, the word pornea. And it's the idea of anything that is outside of what is reserved for marriage. Whether your thoughts, whether your eyes, whether your actions, it is anything that is, that is illicit outside of marriage. God will judge. And of course the other word adulterers is those who are unfaithful uh, in a very obvious way uh, to their spouse. Hold it in heed. These two terms, in other words, cover everything that is outside of the marriage relationship. And folks, if you are dabbling in these things, whether that is pornography, whether that is flirtatious activity with another uh, individual who is not your spouse, uh, whether that is uh, through pictures, whether that is through uh, communication, whether that is through flirting, whether that is through... Uh, 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 the very act or thoughts that flow through your mind, I can tell you on the basis of this passage that God says that will come to account, that will come to light, and God will not take it lightly. If you are in your mind justifying any of these things because of your spouse, you are making excuses for, for some of these thoughts or some of these pictures that you are addicted to or, or some of these uh, relationships that you are pursuing outside of your relationship. Uh, you are justifying uh, uh, the, your, your straying outside of the boundaries of marriage and your thoughts, your looks, your relationships and actions. You, friend, are deceived. There is no justification for that. And when you reject the presence and the goodness of God, sexual immorality and sexual deviancy away from what God designed in your marriage is ultimately, when it comes down to it, an expression of selfishness. And it involves exalting yourself and putting yourself in the throne and setting personal gratification above responsibility and love for God and the Christian community and that spouse that He has given you. 
And our author warns that those who are guilty of such practices will face God as judge. In church, we need to hold marriage up as honorable. We need to see it as holy and sacred, instituted by God. We also need to be aware that when two sinners say, I do, they are two sinners. But the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ and your new identity in Jesus Christ who who enables you to live in righteousness can enable two sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to walk in communion with God. So hold it in heed. Take warning. The evil one will whisper, okay, they're not giving you this, so look for this elsewhere. Or those feelings are gone, so ditch it and find peace and love and satisfaction in another place. Or the lie will be, you do not have to pay the piper. And this passage says that is a lie. The truth is, God will bring it to light. And if you need help in these things, that's why you have a pastor. That's why you have a Christian community. That's why you have the Word of God. And I will say you need other people involved in your life because one of the other lies of Satan is that you can get through this yourself. And you cannot. Hold it in heed. Maybe you're wondering... Well, why then does he go on into possessions and money in the next verse? Because now he talks about covetousness. And the answer to that is this. Looking for things in the wrong places and setting things up in your own life as idols that you are worshipping as an end, as instead of understanding God's gifts that you're to use and steward wisely, Things that occur wrongly outside of marriage and marriage infidelity in a variety of levels and ways has the same root as covetousness, doesn't it? Because we are never satisfied. We're never happy and we're looking for things outside of God's design. And so that's why he can say right into the next topic, verse 5, let your conversation... Be without covetousness. That word of conversation is the idea of your conduct. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Now, wouldn't you think, if you heard heard that, wouldn't you think he should say, let your thinking be without covetousness? Because isn't covetousness something that goes on your head, right? You see, you want. But covetousness results in behavior. Attitudes always result in actions. And so he says, let your conduct be without covetousness, uh, your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Be content with what you have. And he doesn't just give us this command, but he reminds us of what God has already provided. Because every time God gives us a command, he reminds us, he, he, he links it, he loops it, he, he attaches a linchpin to what God has already provided. And here is what he has provided. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So why can you delight in God's design for money? Because He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why. You're wondering, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, let's back up a little bit. 
And verse 5, when he says, let your conversation be without covetousness, that word covetousness in the original language means lover of money. Lover of money. And perhaps you're familiar with what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, where he says the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. Okay? So delighting in God's design for money, and that's why I'm saying money here instead of possessions, uh, money has a power, has an influence, right? It delivers, uh, it can deliver possessions. You need money to get possessions here. So money is the big thing, isn't it? Delighting God's design for money happens with, first of all, a settled heart. A settled heart. What do I mean by a settled heart? Well, Benjamin Franklin said, um, uh, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Uh, Jesus in Luke twelve fifteen says, A man's uh, abundance is not tied to the things that he possesses. Delighting in God's design for money begins with a heart that is settled in contentment. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Be content with what you already have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now let me remind you of the context that this is written in. These are people who in chapter 10 had faced persecution. Some of them had had their belongings taken away. Um, They are... Uh, seeing persecution. Uh, they are seeing, seeing their possessions uh, being ripped out of their hands. Uh, perhaps their uh, uh, ways of income have been, uh, have been severely shrunken because of the trade guilds that would go on that time. If you, if you were in a specific trade guild, so let's, just, let's say suppose you were, you were a blacksmith, there was a patron god for your trade guild and so you would have to offer a sacrifice to to, to your trade uh, to that particular God in your trade guild, um, so that you would um, uh, be able to to, to uh, uh, be allowed in the marketplace, uh, so that you could have trading relationships with other with other vendors, etc. Here, and perhaps those are the things that were giving them a lot of pressure. And the writer says, "Have a settled heart in the truth that Jesus says." I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, that sounds nice, right? That's a nice promise. Jesus will never leave me. How does that play into the fact that my business now is at 70% of what I used to make rather than 100%? Or I'm looking for a roof over my head. Because... Possessions remind us that they can always be taken away. And Jesus is saying, I can never be taken away from my children. You have no guarantee on the things you own. You have no guarantee on the relationship you have with other people, do you? You have a guarantee, and Jesus told his disciples before he ascended, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. You have a guarantee that Jesus never leaves his own. He cannot. For what power would would the cross have been, right? He cannot. He gave his own life. Can he give any more than that? He gave his own life. There's a story of a man who became envious of his friends because they had larger and more luxurious homes. And so he listed his house with a real estate firm and he was planning to sell it and purchase a more expensive home. 
And shortly afterward, he was reading the, uh, the classified section of the newspaper, uh, and he saw an ad for a house that seemed just right. And he calls the realtor and he says, there's a house in today's paper that is exactly what I'm looking for. I want to go through it. I'm going to, have, I want to visit it and tour it as soon as possible. And the agent asked him several questions about it and then said, but sir, that's your house you're describing, right? The human heart is, is, is never content. Uh, a few years ago, when uh, Eastern Europe was under communism, what we called the Iron Curtain, there was a Christian couple that was ministering to believers in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain. And that, cu- that couple had brought in Christian literature. They had brought uh, blankets and other necessary items. And at the church gathering, the couple assured that the bl- the, the, those believers there that Christians in America were praying for persecuted believers in Eastern Europe. And the believer responded back, well, we're happy for that. And thank you. But we feel that Christians in America need more prayer than we do. We here in Eastern Europe are suffering, but you in America are very comfortable. And it is always harder to be a good Christian when you are comfortable. Folks, let's think just a little bit, okay? We do not want to squash ambition, right? And working hard. But we also need to think about our motives about why we do that. Why we do that. Is why you work hard simply to have a better lifestyle? Is why you need dual incomes or why you need that extra job or why you need uh, um, uh, the, the, the pay increase so you have a better lifestyle? Or is why, you, why the things that you do, are they motivated by the kingdom of God? Because Matthew six thirty one through 33 says, you don't need to seek after those things if you understand that Jesus knows what you need before you even ask of it. And you put your mind uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on the eternal things, the kingdom of God, and the Bible says in Matthew six thirty three that if you seek first the kingdom of God, then other things, the things that you need will be added. And I wonder if the way we, uh, we work has the right gospel motivations. I think of families that are harmed because of unnecessary work. Absentees and the lives of children. I think of ministries that are neglected because, well, if I work harder in this, then I can purchase this particular toy, right? Or this particular item, or we can upgrade this. And I just wonder if and it's all shaken out at the end when we stand before God. And you have to answer these questions in your own heart. This is not judgment on you. This is, your own, this is between you and the Lord. Will you say it was worth it all? Will you say it was worth it all? There's a story of a, of a rich businessman who was uh, disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And he said, why aren't you out there fishing? The fisherman said, because I caught enough fish for today. Well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? The rich man said, well, what, what would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money. Uh, you could buy a better boat. So you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets. You could catch more fish. You could make more money. And soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. And the fisherman said, then what would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life and retirement, said the industrialist. <laughs> Well, what do you think I'm doing now, right? <laughs> and listen, we need to work for the glory of God. And then we don't want to squash ambition, all right, in developing business and entrepreneurship. 
here. But we do need to put it in perspective, don't we? We do need to put it in perspective. And so, in Hebrews chapter 13 here, uh, he says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And so, out of a settled heart comes a single heart. The Bible describes this as wholehearted. A singleness of heart. A focused heart. See that phrase there that says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I'm told by Greek scholars has five negatives in it. In other words, I will never, no, never, no, never, no, never, no, never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, it, as if one negative, one never was, wasn't good enough. God says five times, I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. And I know there are folks here who, whose uh, incomes have been changed drastically or whose life situations have, have, have drastically shifted. And one year, I was talking to a dear family this week, last year was their, was their best earning year and now it is a very difficult year. They were not in charge of that. But behind that cloud was a good God. A God who knows exactly what they need and a God who will provide and care for them. And a single heart can delight in God's government of life and delight in His design for money by recognizing that yes, I work, but God is actually the one who provides. It's not my employer who gives me my paycheck, by the way, is it? That's just the means that God uses to provide for me. Uh, with a heart of loving money comes a gnawing anxiety and insecurity, doesn't it? Think of some of the world's wealthiest men, and some of them, we, we think, well, if I get money, I'll be happy. They are some of the most insecure and anxious people, right? Because now their chances for loss are actually greater. You can lose more. And the use here of the word in verse 6 he says so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me the use of the word in verse 5 right before that says I will never leave thee nor forsake thee that word forsake is a fascinating word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament it's a word used in Psalm 21 and used by Matthew and Mark for Jesus cried on the cross my God why have you forsaken me? It's found in Psalm 15.10. It's used in Acts 2.27 for God not abandoning Jesus in the grave but raising Him up. Okay? It's used by Paul in 2 Timothy at the end of his life. He's saying everybody's left me, abandoned me except for Luke. And the point is this. So it's a very deep, heavy word. But the point is this, I will never leave thee nor abandon you. You can take it all away, but Jesus says you cannot take me away. And verse 6 he says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That idea of never being left, never being abandoned, that was made to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 when he succeeded Moses. And folks, we can say assuredly that it is absolutely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Evangelist D.L. Moody had a woman come up to him and say, um, rightly so, I found a promise that helps me when I'm afraid. It's Psalm 56.3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. 
And D.L. Moody said, I have a better promise than that. Uh, Isaiah 12, 2. I will trust and not be afraid. And there's a little bit of a, of a growth, a maturity, isn't there, in that? A heart that is settled, a heart that is single, trusts in the Lord and is not afraid. But finally, notice here, there is a submitted heart. There is a submitted heart. And verse 6 says, if we understand that uh, uh, we can be content with the things that, he, that we have because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, so we can boldly say this. We can boldly say this. When we go through the times of aban- uh, feeling, feeling abandoned, we go through the times of want, go through the times of lack, we can say this. And he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man may do unto me. There's a submitted heart here, isn't there? If I can say that, I have a submitted heart. A heart that has an intelligent trust in God. And when I say an intelligent trust, I mean you know from Scripture why you can trust God. An intelligent trust in God and accepting His promise. Thanking God for His goodness is a dagger to the demon of covetousness. And the writer of Hebrews is not talking about having a stoic philosophy. He is talking about having a relationship that changes everything, isn't he? Friends, every time I turn from the Lord, it is because in that moment I doubt God's true and good intentions for my life. I begin to question, does he really have my best interests at heart? Is he withholding something from me that I would be better off having? And those kind of questions, whether I am verbalizing them or whether they are subconsciously in the back of my mind, lie underneath, folks, every act of distrust and obedience in my life. Is God really good? But the gospel changes my view of God's commands to me. The commands of holding marriage and honor. The commands of, 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 of his, his design for money. And that it helps me see the very heart of the person that these commands come from. When I begin my train of thought with the good news of Jesus Christ and all that God has given me in Christ, I realize that if God loved me enough to sacrifice His Son's life for me, as He says in Romans 8, then He must be guided by that same love when He speaks truth into my life. And it is for my good and His glory. And God's commands and His prohibitions of what to do and what not to do, in this light, I can see them for what they really are. They are friendly signposts from a Heavenly Father who is seeking to love me. So I experience His fullness and abundant life forever. And when my mind is wrapped around the Gospel, these things become less of moral, moralisms and more uh, uh, empty moral commands uh, and more of commands that are coming out of a heart of love for me. You see, without the Gospel... I am doomed to self-love. And that becomes very mundane. It becomes very tiresome. 
And one of the causes of my natural tendency to love myself is fear. Because I can fear, and this, this is all through this passage, I think, is this undercurrent of fear. I, uh, uh, I, I can fear that there is someone out there who is worthy to be, uh, to be loved more than I. Or I have uh, uh, thoughts of arrogance or pride. Uh, because I love myself supremely. I can think I'm the most worthy person to be loved. And I know to be loved and also, uh, uh, and I know that I can do a good job at it myself. I do not believe that God loves me more than anybody else can. And this kind of arrogance and pride is dangerous. And it's deep in my heart. But the gospel frees me from the shackles of this self-love of thinking, uh, I gotta, I, I, I gotta, you know, use money for my own purposes. Uh, I have to, uh, uh, look down on the institution of marriage and, and covenant faithfulness. The gospel frees me from that kind of thinking because it addresses selfishness and pride. The gospel in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1 through 11, all right, assures me that the love of God is infinitely superior to any love I could ever give myself. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says. And the deeper I go into understanding the cross of Christ and God's holiness and my falling short of the glory of God, the more I understand the truth of this claim that God does love the world and He loves me. And He cares for me. And I know how far His love surpasses my own love, which is not a real love, it's a selfishness. And the Gospel reveals to me the glory and the loveliness of God and it turns my heart away from love of self and leaves me captivated by love for Jesus. And the more I behold God's glory in the Gospel, Milton Vincent writes this, the more lovely He appears to me. And the more lovely He appears, the more self fades into the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. For preaching the gospel to myself every day reminds me of God's astounding love for me and also of His infinite worthiness to be loved by me above all else. These reminders deliver a one-two punch to my innate self-absorption and leave me increasingly absorbed with Christ and with God's plan to gather together all heavenly and earthly things in Him. In other words... The more I push into my relationship and the riches of the treasures of Jesus Christ and my Heavenly Father, the more I'm absorbed in that, the more grateful I become in the midst of my circumstances. And my heart that was turned inward is turned outward to love God and love others. The gospel cultivates a rich gratitude. The gospel reminds me that what I actually deserve from God was a full cup of wrath for my sin. And this cup I should have drunk. But Jesus drank that cup on the cross for me. And the cup that He exchanges as He bore my punishment on the cross, He delivers the love of the Father to me, and this cup that I can now drink is the richness of the blessings of the fullness of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, my life doesn't have to be governed by circumstances. But my life is governed by gratefulness. The life that flows out of the gospel finds purity and contentment. Because God has given us himself, we do not have to chase fleeting experiences, empty, illicit relationships that are shallow, or increasing possessions for joy. Jesus is enough. Let's pray.